My name is Matt Sorrell. Um, I have the blessing of serving on the Benevolence Ministry team here, and it's such a blessing to be able to reach out to those that are in need. And I know many of you uh, generously given to that fund, so thank you. And so many of them want us to say thank you to you guys, so I wanted to pass that on to you guys. Would you stand with me as we give honor to the Word of God this morning? Our passage is Romans 1, 24 through 32. <clears throat> Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see to fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous degree, decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. You may be seated. Thank you, Matt. Appreciate that. We are going to continue uh, today in Romans 1 after taking a kind of a month hiatus because of uh, all the holidays season. And in the context of this section, we see Paul making a case for the power, the beauty, and the clarity of the gospel. Before the gospel has meaning, we have to be convinced of its necessity. And so this passage speaks of our culpability and the consequences of sin. In verses 24 through 32, Paul points to what he calls something impure, dishonoring, contrary to nature, consumed with passion, shameless acts, and error. Now, there are 2,000 years of Christian tradition that says that these verses refer to homosexuality. However, that interpretation has come under scrutiny the last few decades of those who would like to see the Bible as embracing homosexual relationships. One book written by a former pastor who now describes himself as a progressive Christian has given what other progressives applaud as a book thousands are waiting for. Colby Martin has written Unclobber, Rethinking Our Misuse of the Bible on Homosexuality. And so he takes 
some of the passages that he says Christians use to clobber others with and provides what another calls a profoundly important book. Now, it's certainly not the first book written by a progressive viewpoint, but I think it provides the basic rationale that has permeated much of the general culture and the, much of the religious culture in America. Martin writes this, I quote, The Bible does not condemn those who are born with same-sex attraction or who are attracted to both sexes or attracted to neither. The Bible does not condemn those who are born with the biology of one gender but identify as another. The Bible does not condemn any and all sex acts between the same sex, end quote. And so he proceeds what he calls unclobbering relevant passages of the Bible on the topic. Now listen, my goal is not to heap condemnation upon those who disagree with me, and especially I don't want to heap condemnation upon those who who struggle with this. Now there's a difference between those, I suppose, who are embracing it wholeheartedly and others who struggle and and want to be free of it, but just just can't uh, in, in a season. And I believe that God provides a pathway for human flourishing, and the Bible is a key to understanding that, right? Remember that the directions of Romans is to basically understand the gospel and to give hope because of the gospel. It's a very hopeful book, but these first few chapters, he's just kind of laying down some groundwork. If we take the lens back some, I think what I'd like to again reiterate, and you've heard me say this many, many times, is that we have to see value. And by we, I mean people who accept the Bible and accept a biblical worldview that people are all made in the image of God. So that means gay, straight, trans, whoever, whatever, okay? They're all made in the image of God. They deserve to be treated like a human being. And they deserve to, to be loved and uh, related to civilly, right? And I believe that a healthy church ought to provide help and assistance for those struggling with whatever sin, but even with sexual temptation. Now, I'm not going to have you raise your hand because I don't need to, because everyone in here has sinned, including me. We all do it. Now, I'm not saying that to excuse it. I'm not saying that to make us uh, comfortable with it. But simply to say, are we really surprised that people sin? (laughs) We can't be surprised at that. And we have to open up our hearts to be humble as we deal with others, talk to others, and even talk to ourselves that, yes, you know, I I have this issue. Uh, Whether you struggle with materialism or uh, arrogance, bitterness, idolatry, or sexual sin, we all experience sin. Now, a church with a biblical worldview can recognize sin, but I think can do so humbly without condemnation. We can offer empathy, but I think a gospel church also offers transformation that takes place, starting with the gospel. And we all know that many churches have failed in this department. 
whether it's with the transformation part or the empathy part. So let's just make sure CCC is not one of them, okay? We, we want to do both those things. I also recognize, and by the way, this is going to be a long introduction because I have to make sure that we're clear about some things before we even get into our passages. But we can't be naive when we talk about these things. No matter how well a church does to love well, once the cat is out of the bag that you think homosexuality is sin, we will be judged as miscreants and Neanderthals. That's just the way it is. And my observation is that progressives, atheists, and Christians who all tout that we have to love and we have to accept all have examples of miserable failures within each of those groups, right? Human pride and blindness to one's faults is not something unique to any group. I have a dear friend who pastored, co-pastored, a church that was in a major metropolitan area, and it, they made it their goal to reach out to the gay community and others who felt ostracized from society. My friend believed the Bible at face value, and when two gay people asked him to marry them, uh, he responded with much gentleness and grace. You know, I, I, just, I just can't do that and tried to give them some other options. Well, other leaders in the church and other members of the church ostracized him, scolded him, and you'll think I'm making this up, but they were just short of violent, okay, in their response to him. I'd like to think that that is the exception. I'm just not convinced of that. And my observation is, and I admit that I'm saying this with only anecdotal evidence, I don't have a scientific study in front of me, is that inclusiveness with much of the progressive Christian groups stops with those who hold to a biblical worldview. Inclusiveness only goes so far, and this is true of about any group. In reality, most are for everyone who agrees with them, <laughs> right? And what happens is, if we have no basis by which to have civility, to have uh, what I call a classical tolerance, other than the, the new kind of tolerance that, that approves of everything. But if, if, you, if you have a, a real tolerance for others and real love for others, but, but you don't have a understanding of the value of the human being, that's all going to fall apart. And so when, when human value, based on our createdness in the image of God, is denied, people are going to struggle with a foundation for tolerance, civility, and kindness. Now, for those who have embraced a progressive view or who are maybe in the middle of deconstructing their faith and they find themselves now believing there are no moral absolutes, I'll just tell you up front, you're going to have a lot of trouble with what I'm going to say the next few weeks. I can only appeal to you that we are open to questions and we are open to civil discussion. If you're a person who's confused about what the Bible says and your mind is open, I hope that you will find these messages helpful. Now, if the Bible is your guide and you accept the Bible as authoritative, 
then I ask of you to entreat the Holy Spirit to help yourself operate with humility and love when it comes to this topic and others as we deal with you know, our cultural issues. I want CCC to be a place where the gospel is for anyone and condemnation is not tolerated. All right? So here's my main point today. Just tell you up front. The obfuscation that paints the Bible as unclear or permissive on this topic is way off topic. We live in a culture where a gay worldview, which is an amazing statement itself that there's a gay worldview, but there really is, has permeated most aspects of society. It's purported that when one says homosexuality is sin, it dehumanizes gays, and that's an example of homophobia, which is like saying stealing someone's car and calling that sin is dehumanizing to the thief and autophobic. That just doesn't make sense. Postmodern critics jump on the bandwagon and claim that this is another example of white evangelical power structures subverting religious language. It is my experience that to say that someone has committed a sin because I'm in this too, right? We've all sinned. That's a far cry from dehumanization or possessing some inordinate fear. Most people could agree that there are things that are really wrong. Even atheists will agree with you that, you know what? Sexual harassment is not right. Abuse, that's not right. Racism, that's really wrong. Great, good place to start. Uh, once we agree that those are really wrong, then we have to get on with the crux of the matter. What authority do we use to make that determination? Now, society does not accept that God has a say in these things. And that is really the fountainhead from which, really, most of this criticism flows. If you reject the Bible as an authority, uh, I can at least hope that you will be intellectually honest about the Bible and that it's not permissive about this issue. And when you're trying to force a meaning into the Bible that's not there, that's a problem. Proponents of the permissive view of Scripture say that humankind is getting more progressive, more open-minded. And we need to go the way that human opinion is, is bending. And they say history is moving towards a more secular, greater freedom and equality for individuals. And so refusing to accept same-sex relationships is really a futile attempt to stop this, you know, historical evolutionary development. Now, on one level, I just think we have to say it really doesn't matter what the culture says because the public opinion is not our standard. We understand this, hopefully, that a biblical worldview is offensive to our culture at many points. The Bible tells us this, that we are foreigners in this land. Now, you'd like to think that most people are kind and gracious to foreigners. 
But what, he, what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that the values of the world are not the values of the kingdom of God, and so you're going to clash. But there is one interesting observation from Eric Kaufman in his book, Shall the Religious Inherit the Earth? that follows the latest demographic research and challenges the idea that the world is becoming inevitably more secular. This is interesting. The percentage of the world's population that are non-religious and that puts emphasis on individuals determining their own moral values is shrinking. Catch this the more conservative religious faiths are actually growing very fast. No one studying these trends believes that history is moving in the direction of more secular societies. Now listen, I'm not claiming that societies are becoming more Christian because the fact is Islam is the fastest growing religion. I am making the point that secularism isn't as progressive as some may think. So what I'd like to do today is to deal with the main passages critics use to attempt to dismantle the traditional view. Critics say that homosexuality is not sin but should be celebrated. And Romans 1 is one of those passages, but I'm not going to deal with Romans 1 today. I'm going to deal with some of the other passages before we get to Romans 1. The first is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. Now, if I read all of it, we'd be going over time, so you'll just please trust me. And I would encourage you to read Genesis 18 and 19, and it'll certainly fill in some of the details that I'm not going to give you today. But in these 38 verses, we read a story about two angels appearing as men who come to visit Sodom. Lot meets these two men at the city gates and invites them over to his house. Genesis 19 says that the old men and the young men in the city wanted to have their way sexually with these two men. And Lot told the men to quit acting so wickedly, but they nearly broke his door down and wanted to get to the two visitors. And then we read an even more disturbing section of Lot offering up his two daughters to these men trying to break into his house to have their way with his daughters. Now, one explanation is that Lot, knowing the men's propensity for homoeroticism, knew that they would reject the offer, and this way he could appear more hospitable. Frankly, I don't find any explanation that quells the absurdity of Lot's offer, but that's just me, all right? The two angels then struck the men blind, but that didn't stop them. They wore themselves out, still groping, trying to get through the door. Crazy episode. Even blindness did not deter them from their lust. Now, we know how it ends, right? Is that the whole city, Sodom and Gomorrah, were destroyed, and Lot's wife died in the process. When you know the story, she looked behind her when she was told not to, when the, the uh, city was going up in smoke. Proponents in favor of homosexuality read this passage and say the abomination, the gross sin that demanded divine justice was lack of hospitality. 
to the two guests. They say, surely all the men and boys of Sodom could not have homosexual orientation because statistics don't bear that out in any you know, major metropolitan city. The critics acknowledge that yes, sex was involved, but they claim that the gang, uh, attempted gang rape, was motivated by dominance over these two men and not homoeroticism. And so this was them being inhospitable. How do we answer those issues? Well, the hospitality narrative actually has a little bit of truth to it, at least for a part of some of the many sins that Sodom committed. We read in Ezekiel 16, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, uh, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. So I removed them when I saw them. So hospitality, not aiding others, was a part of a list of multiple sins. Now, yes, hospitality was highly valued in the society. Notice, though, in Ezekiel, there is also an abomination committed, a specific sin added to the list of others. And it's worth noting, nowhere in Genesis does it tell us that the motive of these men of Sodom was domination out of lack of hospitality. Nothing even close to that. Sodom was guilty of multiple sins, but one stands out. And it is not a lack of hospitality. It's not a case of hospitality or homosexuality. It's not either or, but rather both and so the better question is, was there a prominent sin committed that deserved God's judgments? When reading in the New Testament, Jude and 2 Peter, uh, the offense is highlighted. Again, we're not given a, a long list of things, but sexual immorality and unnatural desire. Jude 7 says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Well, now that adds something to it, that discussion right there. Does that mean all people who are homosexual are going to go to hell? Eternal fire? Well, no, he's speaking of Sodom, first of all. Specific thing. Tim Keller made a statement that I think is instructive in this when he was asked, do you think that everyone who has ever committed homosexuality is going to go to hell? And this is what he said. He said, homosexuality does not send people to hell any more than being straight sends you to heaven. That's a good answer. Because the issue is not your sexuality, the issue is the gospel. Now, yes, we're to live in obedience to God when we come to the gospel, but that is not the determining factor of whether one is in heaven or hell or not. The rejection of God and his authority and his offer for mercy is the root cause of the punishment for Sodom. Homosexuality was just an indicator of where their heart was, of that rejection. I'm reminded of 1 Corinthians 6 that mentions those who practice homosexuality along with a list of other things, and it says they will not inherit 
the kingdom of God. You say, well, that's what it says, doesn't it, Kevin? Well, notice the wording. It says, inherit the kingdom of God. It doesn't say, enter the kingdom of God. Now, I want to read this for you because I think it's worth taking a look at. And although I don't have the verse up here, we actually had this question after the sermon in the first service, so let me just read it for you. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. You ever known a Christian who's stolen? You ever known a Christian who's greedy? Who's partied? You ever known a Christian with a drinking problem? Well, if you believe that homosexuals go to hell because of what this verse says, then you also believe all those other people go to hell because of that. That puts you in a little sticky situation. And I don't think that's what it's saying. What it's saying is to inherit the kingdom of God means rewards. It means that when I get to heaven, there is an inheritance I will receive or one I will not receive. And for those who practice these things on a regular basis, they don't repent, they will lose their inheritance. And see, that is spoken throughout the New Testament. Remember the verse where Paul also talked about your works burned up? but you'll, you'll get to heaven, though, by basically the skin of your teeth, right? And what he's saying is, hey, uh, rewards are being burned up if your foundation is not Christ. So there is this aspect of we need to be obedient, right? And that there are a lot of disobedient Christians, right? So what happens to them? Well, if they're truly a Christian, I believe they will have to have an eternal price to pay, but that's with rewards, not rejection into heaven if they truly have trusted the gospel. I'm not in a position to say who that is, all right? And I'm not saying you are either. All I'm saying is this is what the Bible has to say. That's how I understand it. A lot of people might disagree with me, and well, that's no news to anyone that people disagree with me, but anyway. So misunderstanding that text, though, I think brings a lot of confusion and a lot of unnecessary charges that people who struggle with sexual sin are going to hell. And I just don't think that's what it's saying. Paul's point is that, hey, you used to be these things, but now you're washed, you're, you're justified, you're sanctified. So act like it. Now, we see in another passage what the sin of Sodom was in 2 Peter 2.7. When Lot says, or excuse me, when Peter says, that Lot was greatly distressed by the sexual conduct of the wicked. So my point here in these passages is that we ought to let the, the, the clear instruction of Scripture to guide us to our understanding other than trying to pull out some, you know, idea of hospitality that is, you know... <laughs> It's not the prominent thing. It's also important to note that a chapter before Genesis 19, in Genesis 18, it calls Sodom's sin very grave. Well, now wait a minute. 
This is before the rape attempt and the supposed inhospitality through rape. In addition, to say that the men of Sodom were inhospitable because of attempted rape, it's like saying a husband who beats his wife is just being a little insensitive. I mean, that, that completely misses the mark. That's hardly a meaningful observation given the greater crime. And frankly, it just seems way over the top that God condemns a city because they had bad manners. So, you know, domination and inhospitality is not the issue here. And I don't think that holds weight. Critics of the uh, historical biblical view that has been held for thousands of years point to the impossibility that a vast majority of men were given over to same-sex attraction in Sodom. But I think that actually makes the point when they say this. And I'll tell you why. is because Sodom wasn't a normal city. Obviously, when you look at you know, cities today, it's a, you know, a fraction of people that are homosexual. Sodom was not like any other city, right? It was unique in that it had a real problem. And frankly, I just don't find it really difficult to believe this. When we witness gay pride events in major cities and we see thousands of people in the street propagating a lifestyle, does anyone have a hard time believing that a whole city could be given over to homoeroticism? I don't. Jesus in Luke 10.14 placed Sodom in a very notorious list of one of the most wicked cities of antiquity. And that was the point of Abraham's conversation with God in Genesis 18, when Abraham pleaded with God to spare Sodom if you can find 50 righteous men. Okay, well, can't find 50. How about 45? Uh, Well, if it's not 45, how about 40? No, then it was 30. Then it was 20. They couldn't find 10 righteous men in the whole city. Are we to believe that this was due to them being rude to visitors? Isaiah 3.9 says, For the look of their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. Sodom had a reputation for flaunting its sin. That description is very apropos of the in-your-face attitude of those who seek to advance the homosexual agenda in our day. Jeremiah made essentially the same point when he was drawing a comparison between Judah and Sodom when he wrote, I have seen a horrible thing. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns away from his evil. All of them have become like Sodom to me and its inhabitants like Gomorrah. So Sodom was known for not turning away from wickedness. They were blatant, they were unbending, determined in their intention to proceed with their immorality. Now we have to keep in mind here, just like in Romans 1, that was an explanation of the gospel, eventually, all right, 
that God was ready to show Sodom mercy. Had there been just 10 righteous people in the city, God would have spared it. As it was, only four left alive, and then only three made it completely out safely because even though Lot's wife left the city, she died on the way. Now, there's another so-called clobber set of verses in Leviticus. Leviticus 18.22, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Or Leviticus 20.13, if a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Now, critics start by kind of softening up the word abomination to apply only to clerics in ritual cleansing. The claim is that this prohibition is not for the general populace. Secondly, the prohibitions are under the Old Testament law. And you'll hear this often, that the Old Testament is just way too strict, too rigid. I mean, mankind has progressed far beyond these archaic times. The Old Testament dictated, you know, not eating shrimp or not having clothes with, you know, mixed material. So how in the world can you trust these prohibitions against homosexuality. In fact, one critic, John Boswell, writes, the Hebrew word translated abomination does not usually signify something intrinsically evil, like rape or theft, but something which is ritually unclean for Jews, like eating pork or engaging in intercourse during menstruation, both of which are prohibited in these same chapters. So, let's talk about critics wanting to apply this passage to only Jewish clerics. To me, that puts them in a little bit of a bind because are you then saying that all homosexual you know, ministers today are in sin? Certainly, <laughs> so they're not going to say that, right? That would seem to be problematic. Secondly, the context is instructive for us. The passage says in entirety, check this out, verses 20 through 23, and you shall not lie... Uh, sexually with your neighbor's wife, adultery. Uh, and so make yourself unclean with her. You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Moloch, child sacrifice. And so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. And you shall not lie with a male as like a woman. It's an abomination. And you shall not lie with an animal. And so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It is a perversion. So, I'd have to ask my friends who are critics of saying that homosexuality is sin, if it's not in this list, are you also saying bestiality, human sacrifice, adultery is acceptable? Puts you in a little bit of a pickle. For consistency, they'd probably say, well, all of it is no good, and just get rid of it all, and it has, it has no bearing. And others might say, well, no, it, it all applies today. Well, the point is, is it seems to be choosing certain practices that suit you instead of taking the whole context of the passage. It's worth noting that the writer of Leviticus makes it clear about who they're addressing. And it's not just for a chosen few. In 
chapter 18, verse 1, he says, to the people of Israel. And then in chapter 19, verse 1, to the whole congregation. In other words, the application was to be for all the people of God in the Old Testament. Now, many are confused when we have a discussion like this. Because when you look at Old Testament injunctions, and then we're not under the law, what does that mean? It's a fair question. Does this mean all the law is beneficial for pointing us to Christ, but we're not obligated to it? Or does it mean the ceremonial and sacrificial aspects we're not under, but the moral law still applies? Explaining maybe why Jesus said every jot and tittle is still going to stand and pass, uh, and not pass, excuse me. And frankly, to get into the intricacies of all that, I'm not going to do today because that's beyond our scope. But my point is, whatever position you take, it really doesn't matter because it doesn't change the position I'm presenting to you today. And the reason is, is because Jesus affirms the design of marriage between a man and a woman in the New Testament, in Matthew 19. And we see this unity that comes from diversity between a male and a female that are unique. Why is it that every comedian makes jokes about you know, men and women because they're so different? How in the world can they function in a marriage? Well, that's the way God designed it. And it shows the love that God has for us. That's, that's reiterated in Ephesians 5, uh, where it talks about male and female relationships uniquely picture the love of God for humankind in the gospel. Okay? You see all these differences, but we can still uh, be unified. These clearly express God's design for relationships, and it sets the standard. I'd make the point that obviously the Old Testament speaks clearly about sexual sin, but no matter how you come out on what part of the law applies to today, the New Testament still reaffirms it. Jesus reaffirms God's standard for marriage and clearly stated the immorality prohibitions. Homosexual relationships are more popular today because people buy in to the cultural narrative that promotes it and they reject the design of God in creation. And our society elevates the thoughts and feelings of the individual as crucial to personal identity instead of their createdness or God's order. And so we're left with this malaise that we have in our culture. And by the way, curbing homosexual desires, critics say, leads to psychological damage and even suicide. Really? Saying no to your fleshly desire is going to lead to suicide? How many of us have had to say no to fleshly desire? See, that's nothing unique to homosexual. Heterosexuals have to do the same thing. It doesn't lead to suicide. We're the facts for that. What I'm presenting to you today is that it is disingenuous to say that the Bible approves of homosexuality. William Loder, who wrote Sexuality in the New Testament, 
has written several volumes about this, okay? He's a prominent expert in ancient and biblical views of sexuality. Now listen, Loder personally approves of homosexuality, okay? But he says, check this out, that a person cannot get that from the Bible. So clearly the Bible does not approve of that. I find that approach to be far more intellectually honest than trying to force a meaning onto the Bible that it does not hold. So here's, I think, a question for us today. Can we trust the moral instruction in the Bible that it is beneficial for the fulfillment of God's will and living the abundant life? And I would have to answer that with a resounding yes. Of course Satan would want to muddy the waters. And of course Satan is going to say, do not believe his words, just like he did in the garden. God didn't really say that. And that's exactly what he's doing now. It is not a mystery. It is clearly communicated by God. And that we all will continue to receive great blessing from obedience. Let's pray.